Shri Shri Radha Krishna Go Gopinash Shaimakunda Radha Kunda Giti Govardhana Ki Jai Vrindavan Dhamma Ki Jai Mathura Dhamma Ki Jai Nabhadrit Mayapur Dhamma Ki Jai Jagannath Puri Dhamma Ki Jai Gangamaya Jamuna Devi Ki Jai Bhakti Devi Ki Jai Tulsi Maharani Ki Jai Samaveta Bhakti Vrinda Ki Jai Gaur Premananda all glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada, Nama Om Vishnu Padaya. Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale, Sri Mate Bhaktivedanta Swami Niti Namane. Namaste Sarasvati Deve Goravani Pacharane. Nirvase Sasunyavadi Paskachade Satarane. Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Utapadakamalam Shri Guru Vaishnavamscha Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raganatam Vitam Sam Sajivam Sadvoitam Sadvadutam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Deva Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Valita Shri Vishakam Vitamscha Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya August 28, 2014 Skype class from Hilo, Hawaii and we're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam Canto 2, Chapter 7, Scheduled Incarnations with Specific Functions, Text 52. Yataharo Bhagavati Yataharo Bhagavati Nirnam Bhaktir Bhavishyati Sarvatman Yakila Dare Sarvatman Yakila Dare It is Ankalpia Varnaya It is Ankalpia Varnaya Harao Harao Unto the personality of Godhead Bhagavati Unto the Lord Unto the Lord. Nirnam. Nirnam. For human beings. For human beings. Bhaktihi. Bhaktihi. Devotional service. Devotional service. Become enlightened. Become enlightened. Sarva Atmani. Sarva Atmani. The absolute whole. Akila Adare. Unto the summum bonum. Unto the summum bonum. Iti. Iti. Thus. Thus. Sankalpya. Sankalpya. By determination. By determination. Varnaya. Describe. Describe. 
Translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada. Please describe the science of Godhead with determination and in a manner by which it will be quite possible for the human being to develop transcendental devotional service under the personality of Godhead, Hari, the supersoul of every living being and the summum bonum source of all energies. Purport. Srimad Bhagavatam is the philosophy of devotional service and the scientific presentation of man's relationship with the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Prior to the age of Kali, there was no need for such a book of knowledge to know the Lord and his potential energies. It's quite a statement here, if we really think about what Prabhupada's saying here. Prior to the age of Kali, there was no need for such a book of knowledge to know the Lord and his potential energies. But with the beginning of the age of Kali, human society gradually became influenced by four sinful principles, namely illegitimate connection with women, intoxication, gambling, and unnecessary killing of animals. Because of these basic sinful acts, man gradually became forgetful of his eternal relationship with God. Therefore, man became blind, so to speak, to his ultimate goal of life. The ultimate goal of life is not to pass a life of irresponsibility, like the animals, and indulge in a polished way in the four animal principles, namely eating, sleeping, fearing, and mating. For such a blind human society in the darkness of ignorance, Srimad Bhagavatam is a torchlight to see things in proper perspective. Therefore, it was necessary to describe the science of God from the very beginning or from the very birth of the phenomenal world. As we have already explained, Srimad Bhagavatam is so scientifically presented that any sincere student of this great science will be able to understand the science of God simply by reading it with attention or simply by regularly hearing it from the bona fide speaker. I find this interesting that Prabhupada's giving uh, two things. Either you sit down and read it yourself with attention or read it with others, or you hear it from a bona fide speaker. Going on, everyone is hankering after happiness in life, but in this age the members of human society, blind as they are, do not have the proper vision that the personality of God is a reservoir of all happiness because he is the ultimate source of everything. Janma yasya yataha. Happiness in complete perfection, without hindrance, can be achieved only by our devotional relationship with Him, and it is only by His association that we can get free of distressful material existence. So, those are two very interesting sentences. Prabhupada's talking about achieving happiness and achieving liberation, which are, of course, the two main materialistic goals of religion, bhukti and mukti. And here Srila Prabhupada saying, if you want real bhukti and you want real mukti, you need to get that in association with Krishna. So that's interesting. Okay, going on. Even those who are after the enjoyment of this material world can also take shelter of the great science of Srimad Bhagavatam and they will be successful at the end. Uh, here Prabhupada's referring to the famous verse in the Bhagavatam, Sarva Kama Moksha Kama Akama Udharadi, somebody whose intelligence they will take to bhakti. So even if you want, it's interesting because it's almost contradictory, even if you want material happiness, material happiness, it doesn't really mean like a nice car. Material happiness means I want enjoyment separate from Krishna. So Prabhupada say, if you, even if you want enjoyment separate from Krishna, the best way to get it is to go to Krishna. <laughs> Going on, Narada is therefore requested or ordered by his spiritual master to present this science with determination and in good plan. Narada was never advised to preach the principles of Bhagavatam to earn a livelihood. He was ordered by his spiritual master 
to take the matter very seriously in missionary spirit. Yata harau bhagavati nirnam bhaktir bhavishyati sarvatyanyakiladare iti sankalpa varnaya. Please describe the science of Godhead with determination and in a manner by which it will be quite possible for the human being to develop transcendental devotional service under the personality of Godhead Hari, the super soul of every living being and the summum bonum source of all energies. So in a previous purport, Srila Prabhupada referred to the Bhagavat Sandarbha of Jiva Goswami. And there's a section there on this chapter of the Bhagavatam. And in that section by Jiva Goswami, he very interestingly relates this verse to 2.9.36, which is one of the Chatur Slokis of the Bhagavatam, in which it says that this devotional service is applicable universally. It's applicable for everyone, in all, every living entity, in all times, in all places, in all circumstances, and one should uh, only be searching out this absolute truth. And Srila Prabhupada here in the purport is also talking about the universality of Krishna consciousness. And then he talks about the specificity of the method for achieving it in this particular age. So we have universal yet contextual, universal yet contextual. And this principle of universal yet contextual, universal yet specific to time, place, and circumstance which is similar to, but not exactly the same as unity and diversity. It's, it's related to the concept of unity and diversity. Really answers the question of sectarianism. It answers the question of institutionality of religions. It answers the questions of, of you know, why are there so many religions and yet there's, there's one truth. How, how is that possible? And it also gives great guidance for us as teachers. So this, this verse is really not so much for the student as for the teacher, because here Narada is being asked to become a teacher. And Srila Prabhupada gives quite a lot of indications in this purport about how to be a good teacher of spirituality, how to, have, how to keep the universality, how not to degrade into some kind of sectarianism and rigidity, uh, institutionalism, and at the same time, be contextual. At the same time, be specific to time, place, and circumstance. At the same time, operate within a particular uh, sampradaya, within a particular school, within a particular age, within, with, with a particular teacher. And it, it's, it's quite fascinating. Because we see in the world there tends to be one of these two views, but not a harmonizing of them. And I mean, for myself, speaking for myself, one of the deal breakers for me in joining the Hare Krishna movement was Srila Prabhupada's emphasis on universality and non-sectarianism, while at the same time offering a very specific and practical plan of spiritual life. The, the combination of those two things was what attracted me, because that was what I wanted. I wanted something that was not sectarian, that was not self-righteous, that was not exclusive, and at the same time was very specific. Because what we see 
in the world today, as I say, is generally one of the two extremes. There's a place we go to on the other side of the island called the New Thought Center. We go and give programs there. Just recently we did a program there, which was a wonderful, wonderful program. The people there tend to be very much in Satvagun. I was just this morning reading the prayers of the Nagapatnis, the wives of Kaliya to Krishna, and they were saying that you specifically incarnate to help those in the mode of goodness. So the people going to these kind of places, they tend to be very much in Satvagun. You know, God is everywhere, God is everything. Uh, we want to become balanced and forgiving and kind and so forth and so on. We want to become liberated. They tend to be vegetarians. And as Prabhupada talks about in this purport, they often tend to be following uh, all four or, uh, <laughs> or maybe three of the four regulated principles. They're engaged in some sort of meditation and practice. But it's very difficult for them to adhere to a particular practice. When I was at the, that program just recently, one of the participants came up to me and said, so how long have you been in this path? How long have you been following one particular guru? And I said, well, for 40, over 41 years. And she said, wow, that's a long time to follow one discipline. And I think it was the first time ever that I got some understanding of why many times people even coming to the Krishna consciousness movement don't keep their vows. All of a sudden it struck me that when I took my initiation vows, to me it was, I'm taking a lifetime vow and that's it. And for many people, it's this is something I'm going to try out for a while. You know, I'm going to check it out and, and take initiation in this society and check it out and then I may go do something else. And these people were very much like that. Well, I'm going to try a little bit of this, I'm going to try a little bit of that. And they take that attitude, that eclectic attitude, as being something valuable. I mean, like we all think art and artists are valuable, so that's not anything unusual. But they take it as valuable and evidence of their universality, evidence of the fact that they're devoted to something that's universal and not sectarian, that they're not just following a particular path, that they're taking a little bit from this and a little bit of that. So you have those sort of people, and they, they think that being universal, that understanding that truth applies, as it says in the chapter Sloki, that understanding the truth applies to all persons. I, I'm assuming that Jiva Goswami is getting that from Nirnam, for all human beings. Uh, and Akila Adare, Akila also all. Sarva Atmani, Sarva. So I'm, I, that's my assumption, is that's... That's why he's linking this verse to this universality, which again, Srila Prabhupada's emphasizing in the purport. You know, the only way to be happy for all human beings, the only way to get free of misery for all human beings. I mean, Jiva Goswami even argues, one could say, with Nirnam, human beings. He said, why human beings? He said, all living entities, even the animals, even the plants, etc. So people think that this universality must mean that you don't stick to a particular path, you don't identify with any school, you don't say... And, and this is happening much more lately. I finished a book a couple months ago of research as to why children do or do not take up the specific religious system of their parents. 
why do they either give up religion completely or why do they switch to a different religion? And as part of the research in this book, it was a 30-year-long longitudinal scholarly study done in America, so it was, it, was, it was specific to America. But in this study, they detailed how conceptions of being religious and conceptions of being spiritual have changed over the last 100, 110 years, I believe. And they looked at four generations in this study. And I, I found that maybe one of the most fascinating things of the book, that when they went back to the fourth generation, if they asked people, are you religious? They would say, yes, I go to my church every Sunday. They identified religion almost exclusively with a particular group and with, with group worship at a particular location. And when they asked these people, are you spiritual? The people didn't have an answer. They said, I don't know what you mean by that. What does that mean? Or, well, yeah, I already told you I go to church every Sunday. They, they didn't have some other definition of spiritual, whereas at the present time, people are much more likely to say they're spiritual but not religious, and they're much more likely even to identify with a particular religion but say, well, I'm Catholic, but I don't go to church. I, I just practice in my own way, something like that. So this concept of being of universality meaning non-practice of a particular path, is, is an increasingly popular and prominent concept in modern society. And then you have the opposite perspective. The opposite perspective is that it only has to be this way. You know, it only has to be Bhagavatam. I mean, I find it fascinating that Prabhupada says here in the purport, prior to the age of Kali, there was no need for such a book of knowledge to know the Lord. So he's saying that people in previous ages didn't read the Bhagavatam. <laughs> That's what he's saying. There was no need of it, that the Bhagavatam was compiled at the beginning of this age. I mean, it's also interesting, of course, Prabhupada says in other places that there's more cantos of the Bhagavatam on other planets. But there's this, it can, we can come to this sectarian idea that the particular context in which we perform our, our bhakti yoga is the only context, and it's the only context that ever existed from the beginning of time until the end of time. There's one purport, I believe, in the fifth canto that I ended up giving a lecture on several months ago in Belgium, where it was described how in the, in the beginning of Satya Yuga, there wasn't even Varnashram, there was only Hamsa. Everybody was Hamsa. There was no need of agriculture and the only, the only deity was Narayan. There was no worship of the demigods, and the only mantra was Om. And we discussed at that time this concept of universality and, and contextuality. But in sectarianism, one thinks that my religion is the only religion, and it's always been the only religion, and there's never be any other religion. Of course, they don't think that way going back in time. So every, you know, every Christian understands that Christianity started at a particular point in time. Islam started at a particular point in time. Judaism started at a particular point in time. Buddhism started at a particular point in time. And if you ask these people, you know, what was the system of religion before that, they, they give you a variety of answers. You know, the Muslims will say, well, before that there were other prophets, but now Muhammad is the last. And the Christians will say, well, before that was Judaism but then it had become corrupt, so Jesus had to start a new religion. And the Jews will mostly say that there just simply wasn't any religion previous to that. I'm not quite sure what the Buddhists would say. So they, have a, they certainly have a starting point, 
but most of them don't have an ending point. So we talk about our practice as having an ending point. We say that Mahaprabhu's movement will be finished in 10,000 years. And we talk about there being different systems uh, for practicing bhakti yoga in different ages. But even then, you can find that people, even, even with that understanding, who are practicing Krishna consciousness now, will still have this view that everybody, in order to attain to the ultimate goal of life, has to do things in a, in a particular way. And it can get uh, very specific. I mean, it can really get very, very specific as exactly how you do achmana and exactly, you know, uh, what time of day you chant your japa and things like that. It, it, it can get to the realm, we could say, almost of the absurd in, in terms of thinking that rituals have to be performed in exactly a specific way in order to attain enlightenment and in order to attain Krishna consciousness. And, uh, you know, they have to be, be done exactly the way, of course, that, that I do it is where it goes to. So how do we harmonize these two things? Because it's emphasized over and over and over again that one has to approach a guru. And one is supposed to follow the orders of the guru, as if the guru is God. Not that the guru is God, but as if the guru is God. So when we accept Srila Prabhupada as our guru, and he says, chant minimum 16 rounds, if I say, well, I'm Prabhupada's disciple, but I'm going to say I'm going to chant minimum one round, or I'm going to chant the Panchatattva mantra on my beads. So we know one of our, one devotee who started his own movement like that. Or we know one devotee who started his own movement where he says you can't chant Hare Krishna until you're already following the four regular principles, that you can't bring the Hare Krishna mantra to the people in general. So if, if one does that, if one says, well, I'm because the Hare Krishna, because Krishna consciousness and bhakti is universal, therefore I don't have to follow my teacher. I can make something up. So then we're told that we're in danger. Yasya prasada, bhagavad prasada, yasya prasada, nagatikitopi. And then on the other hand, if we have rigid following that's not amenable to time, place, and circumstance, then we're also doomed. That becomes Niyamagraha. That becomes sectarianism. That, that becomes... Uh, uh, we, we, you lose the whole thing. So how do you do both? It's, it's a very difficult question. How do you strictly follow? Because if I strictly follow my teacher and, you know, and people who follow me strictly follow me, and people who follow them strictly follow them. If everybody strictly follows all the details of their teacher, then there'll never be a contextual adjustment. <laughs> what do you, you know, if the parampara goes on in such a way that nobody ever makes a contextual adjustment, then things aren't adjusted for time, place, and circumstance. At the same time, one has to strictly follow one's teacher. So I uh, how is this adjusted? So I, re- I really like uh, there's some nice quotes here. This is from Chaitanya Charitamrita, Majalila 2372. 
Rishi Chaitanya Mahaprabhu says to Sanatana Goswami, Krishna is highly cunning, expert, grateful, and firmly determined in his vows. He knows how to deal according to time, person, and country. I also really like, as one of my guiding principles, this stanza that our Srila Prabhupada wrote to his Srila Prabhupada on Vyas Puja in 1936. He said, the line of service as drawn by you is pleasing and healthy like morning dew. The oldest of all but in new dress, miracle done, your divine grace. And we find that uh, Srila Prabhupada gives us as a principle, he says in the purport to 1.15.16, the expert devotees can also discover novel ways and means to convert the non-devotees in terms of particular time and circumstance. Devotional service is dynamic activity, and the expert devotees can find out competent means to inject it into the dull brains of the materialistic population. And in Adi Leela's 738 purport, he says, Deshakala Patra, the time, the place, and the object, should be taken into consideration. Therefore, it is a principle that a preacher must strictly follow the rules and regulations laid down in the Shastras yet at the same time devise a means by which the preaching work to reclaim the fallen may go on with full force. In a lecture Prabhupada gave on Bhagavatam 1.2.10 on November 16, 1973, he said, I have to arrange according to the country, according to the circumstances, as far as possible. So we have to adopt Deshikalapatra, but we are keeping our principles as it is, but making arrangement according to the circumstance. That is required. So, interestingly enough, if we strictly follow our teacher and we have a bona fide teacher, then our teacher himself is telling us you have to keep the essence and you have to adjust for time, state, place, and circumstance. That is the instruction of our teacher. So, okay, I'm going to strictly follow my teacher means I can never adjust anything. No, if I'm going to strictly follow my teacher means I must adjust things according to time, place, and circumstance. That is strictly following. And then the question, of course, becomes, okay, well, what can be adjusted and what can't be, and what not only can be, but what must be adjusted? As, as a teacher, how do you know what can be and what, uh, or not just can, what must be never changed, what can be changed, what must be changed? How do you distinguish uh, in that way? Burjan Prabhu asked Srila Prabhupada that question, and Prabhupada simply replied, that requires intelligence. And we find that probably the majority of conflicts between religious practitioners are on this very point. Universality and... Uh, contextuality. What is a principle that can't be changed? What is a detail that can, or in many places, must be changed? To what extent is following every detail evidence of adherence to one's teacher? And to what extent is adjusting details for time, place, and circumstance evidence of adherence to one's teacher? 
And at what point does one start to individualize one's own practice? And to what extent can one individualize one's own practice and at the same time remain faithful to one's teacher? Now, I don't think that we can answer those questions with specificity. I don't think we can say something that everybody will agree with. But we can talk about the general principles that answer this question. And I think just understanding that this is a question, and it's a question that each of us should be asking ourselves, not daily probably, but periodically. As a teacher, certainly, and also as a practitioner, that what is it that's universal? What is it that's true for everyone, always, in all time, place, and circumstance, that can never be changed, that uh, never is changed, that is true from the beginning to the end in all the universes, for all the living entities, always? And what is it that is adjusting? It's adjusting according to planet. It's adjusting according to the time. It's adjusting according to the person. It's adjusting according to so many things. What is it that it's, what is it that differentiates those two? So here we have some clue as to what is the universal. We have here unto the personality of Godhead, Haro, Bhagavati, unto the Lord, Bhaktihi, devotional service. So this is a universal, to love God. And if we find, again, in any bona fide religious system, this is always the universal, to love God. Actual love for God. And then we have another universal, Sarva Atmani, which Prabhupada in the word for word, says the absolute whole, and in the translation, says the super soul of every living being. So this is also a universal. Who is God? How do we understand God? Sarva Atmani, of all living beings. The God is God for everyone. It's not, this is my God, this is your God. Another universal is Akila Adare, which Srila Prabhupada translates here as unto the summum bonum. Now, Jiva Goswami translates this word a little differently. He translates this word as the maintainer of everyone. And it's interesting, Jiva Goswami says that even if a person doesn't understand God as a supreme lovable object, even if a person isn't Uh, really understanding bhakti. They understand that Krishna is the supreme maintainer. So the summum bonum, if we look up, that's a Latin term, it means the ultimate good. And Prabhupada extrapolates that summum bonum into the source of all happiness and the destroyer of all miseries, as we were saying as we were going through the purport. That he's the one who gives ultimately what we want through bhukti and ultimately what we want through mukti. Prabhupada goes on to say the reservoir of all happiness and the supreme lovable object. So those are the universals. And one connects with him uh, through serving him. 
So those are universals. Those, if those are violated, one loses dharma. Savaipam samparo dharma yato bhaktir adhoktaje hoituki apritiyata yadatma supersedity. One will not become happy. If one thinks that the universal is something else, if one thinks that the universal is everyone has to worship Jesus, or one thinks that the universal is, you know, you have to light your candle at Mass in a particular way, or, or something like that, then that's not the point. One is missing the point. Even if one, frankly speaking, thinks that the universal is that one has to have a particular relationship with the Lord, that is also missing the point. So that's the universal, and frankly, that's not that many more universals. There aren't that many more universals. I mean, we could talk about uh, a universal of association with devotees, but that's not true in all time, place, and circumstances, just like Krishna became the direct guru of Arjuna. And we have circumstances in history where somebody is in a, a hellish condition away from all of the devotees, and yet they still love God. So we, we find such circumstances, there are certainly exceptions, but we find such things. So there really aren't very many other universals. Another one would be to be kind to all living entities. So that's something, just like Jesus said, there's two principles, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself, and which is, of course, at least part of the basis of the fact that we don't kill animals unnecessarily, just like a little side note. Sometimes Srila Prabhupada talks about how we don't preach vegetarianism, but Prabhupada in a purport such as this one makes no reference to prasadam. He simply says, uh, do not have unnecessarily killing of animals. So this concept of mercy to all living entities is also a universal because because Krishna is Sarva Atmani, because Krishna is a super soul of everyone, therefore it's not possible to love God without also loving everyone. One cannot be cruel to others and love God, which is exactly the one of the dangers of sectarianism that in the name of one's universal principle of love of God, one goes around hating others who don't love God exactly the way that you do, which is, you know, if you think about it, uh, absurd. Just like if you have a, a big family, you know, you have a family of, of 10, 15 children. So each of those children has a different relationship with their mother and father. If you say everyone should love their mother and father, but they each love their mother and father in a different way, and then they each have different relationships with each other. And, in fact, one of the reasons that parents have more than one child is to have a variety of relationships. You know, if, if all the children had exactly the same relationship with you, it wouldn't be very pleasing. So this is also a universal, that one has to love everyone. I remember going to a Christian education convention many, many, many years ago, and they had a sign that said, everyone who loves Jesus should love everyone who loves Jesus. And we would take that a step further and say, everyone who loves God should love everyone, even those who don't love God. One should have mercy to all living entities. So those are the universals. 
And then beyond that are things which do change. I mean, to the point that Prabhupada says in that fifth canto purport that in the Satya Yuga, the mantra was Om. He says, but in the present age, that's the present time, that the present age, that's not practical, he says, because in order to get benefit from chanting Om Kara, one has to already be in Sattva Gun. Just like our, our Gayatri mantras, one has to be in Sattva Gun to get benefit from chanting these Gayatri mantras. Otherwise, they don't, they're just not efficient, they're not effective. You can go on chanting them, chanting them, and they, they don't work. You're not in the, in the proper consciousness. Just like in order to digest certain kinds of food, you have to have a functioning digestive system. It may be healthy food, but if you can't digest it, it's just useless. Uh, you have to have teeth, just like we have a little baby here, and we have to pick out the raisins from the cereal because he can't digest them. He doesn't have any back teeth to chew them. So although raisins are nutritious and delicious and so many things, they're wonderful, they're not wonderful for him. He doesn't get any benefit out of them because he doesn't have teeth. So Srila Prabhupada explains that if one isn't in Satvagun, one doesn't get benefit out of chanting Omkara, which is interesting because we in the Hare Krishna movement, in Prabhupada's Iskhan, we do chant the Omkara even in public. We chant Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. We say Om, uh, you know, Om is also in our Pranam mantra to Srila Prabhupada. But anyway, Prabhupada in that purport talks about how at this age the mantra is the Hare Krishna mantra which everyone can chant. So we might have this idea that, well, our Hare Krishna mantra is a universal in all time, place, and circumstance. But it's not. There's different mantras chanted at different times. Dhruva Maharaj was chanting Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. We may think reading Bhagavatam is a universal. I mean, you know, we're talking about Panchanga Bhakti given by Rupa Goswami. But here Srila Prabhupada saying there was no need of the Bhagavatam before the Kali Yuga. You know, so the, the sort of things that we may think, oh, this is an absolute universal, they're not. They're contextual. They're, they're changing according to time, place, and circumstance. They're changing according to the age. And by keeping these sort of things in mind, we can give people Krishna consciousness and at the same time respect them as individuals. We can have an institution, we can have a, a school, a sampradaya that has certain practices and at the same time not be in a mood of, you know, the way our particular school and our particular sampradaya does it is the only way. That doesn't mean you change things within your school. It, it's the way I've always looked at it is just like there's many universities you know, now I have two grandsons going to this local university of Hawaii, and the second one is taking a class in sociology. So I also studied sociology at the University of North Carolina. So my classes I took in sociology at the University of North Carolina and the classes he's taking in sociology here at the University of Hawaii are going to be different. And I also teach sociology. I teach sociology of religion at Bhaktivedanta College in Radhadesh, which is a fully accredited undergraduate program. I inherited the class from Kartamisha Prabhu, who inherited the class from Burke Rochford. So in inheriting the class from them, I, they had very, a very different set of notes. They used different textbooks, 
their syllabus was, was quite different. Even though the aims and objectives of the course, or as they say in Europe, the module, were the same. The aims and objectives were the same. Their textbooks were different, their syllabus was different, their pedagogy was different. It was quite different. And the students who attended their classes and the students who attended my class had quite a different experience. But I would like to say, I would hope to say, that the students in Burke Rochford's class, the students in Cartomish's class, and hopefully also the students in my class, all learned about sociology of religion. And any of them could go on and explain about sociology of religion and use sociology of religion, although we all explained it differently and we all did it quite differently. Not, not just slightly differently, but quite differently. At the same time, if someone's sitting in my class and they say, well, Ermila, uh, you know, this is not the way Burke Rochford taught it. I want to do it the way Burke Rochford taught it. I don't want to follow your textbook. I don't want to follow your syllabus. I found the old syllabus of Professor Rochford, and I'm going to follow his syllabus. I'm going to say, get out of here. Get out of my class. If you're in my class, you have to follow my syllabus. So this is how to balance the two that whoever I'm following, I have to follow. And in order to achieve universal principles, I have to follow a particular teacher faithfully. This is the mystery. In order to achieve universal principles, I have to follow a path. We have here the word sankalpya, by determination, to have a fixed resolve uh, the word sankalpa is very important, especially in mystic yoga practice, but it's used frequently throughout the Bhagavatam. That one takes a particular resolve. One doesn't do yatamat tatapat. One doesn't just say, well, I can follow the universal principle and however I choose. I don't, I don't need a guide. I don't need to stick to a guide. That's not going to work because... Om Ajnana Timirandasya Gananjana Shalakaya Chakshushan Militanjana Tasmai Shri Gurvenaha. We're blind. We don't know. It's the beginning of knowledge, is, is humility. I don't know. So if I don't know, I have to follow someone who knows. Mahajana Yena Svata That one has to follow the path of the Mahajanas. One can't even just go to the Shastra oneself and say, well, I think I'm going to follow this and I, need, I think I'm going to follow that. We're blind. I mean, we're really blind. We, we don't think that we're blind. We think we can see, but we're really blind. I think as we progress in spiritual discipline, we really start to see how blind we are, how covered we are, how much we're under a thick blanket of the modes of material nature. And we really don't understand anything. So we have to follow a guide. But we follow our, our guide without thinking, the way I'm following my guide is the only way for everybody always. Even if there's 10 people in the same class, the professor may adjust things for the different students in that class. That's also true. Even everyone following the same guru, even everyone in the same sampradaya, everyone, they may be following somewhat differently according to their individuality under the instructions of the Guru. 
So this is a very complex and difficult topic, and it's very, very easy to fall into a yatama tatapat kind of pseudo-universality, which is simply a way of avoiding commitment and avoiding sankalpa. And then it's also very easy to fall into sectarianism and rigidity and, frankly, impersonalism. That, you know, they're both different kinds of impersonalism, aren't they? So the, uni- the so-called universalist who doesn't follow a particular person in a particular path and the person who follows a particular person in a particular path so rigidly and so blindly that they don't allow for individual differences in the present nor for major differences in different ages and different times. And as a teacher, we should have this goal. I really like at the end here where Prabhupada's saying, Narada is therefore requested or ordered that we could have a whole class about the difference between request or order to present this science with determination and in good plan. So to have this sankalpa not only in my own following, but to have this sankalpa in my preaching, that my aim is to bring people to universal principles, and in good plan, to make plans, contextual plans, which means the plans need to shift as the context changes. Srila Prabhupada is an exemplar of this, how Prabhupada made contextual plans and shifted his plans as the context changes. And Prabhupada ends with the mood, which is perhaps the key to the whole thing, that the mood is not to preach as a livelihood, but to preach in missionary spirit. And we could say that's also the mood for being a follower, that if one wants to have a a balanced understanding of being on the spiritual path there should be the proper spirit that I'm trying to love God that this is not a job it's not um, it's not something just on the on the platform of, of superficiality so anyways this is a very deep subject and questions or comments I think what we can do is we'll try to do what we did last time and I see we already have some questions here. Um, oh, offer my respects to everyone here. Okay, what do we have? So we have Narahari says, Prabhupada left us nearly 40 years ago. What changes have we seen in details and perhaps what changes should we have seen? Well, one change that we see in the details of circumstance is, let's just look here very narrowly at ISKCON. So a change, is, uh, some very strong changes we have seen in ISKCON in sociological terms is now the vast majority, some estimates are 96% of people who self-identify as ISKCON members are no longer economically or residentially dependent on the society, the society's funds and the society's engagements. So that's a huge difference. It's, it's absolutely huge. 
And the way that we preach Krishna consciousness, the way that we train people in Krishna consciousness needs to be radically different. I mean, when I joined the Hare Krishna movement, I was practically ordered to drop everything, drop out of college, you know, give away my car, give away all my possessions, move into an ashram where I lived in a room with 12 other women and I had a little tiny box full of stuff. You know, that that was the... But now, it's exactly the opposite. Most places that I go in the world, people are told, you know, it's better not to live in the ashram. It's better not to move into the ashram. It's probably not a very good idea. So I find that fascinating. So that's a, a big change in how Krishna consciousness is presented. I mean, an example of this, I, I think one of the best examples of a yatra that's responded to this change is Hungary. And Hungary is kind of interesting because there is definitely a mood there that the people who live on Iskand property have a superior situation. They, they definitely have still have that mood left over from the 60s and 70s. But they've adjusted their preaching at the same time. So they strongly discourage people from moving into the ashram. And their system is you come for a weekend of training and at the end of the weekend, you get grad, you graduate, you get a certificate, there's a ceremony. So they celebrate that you're finishing and you're leaving, <laughs> rather than making it shameful to leave. And then you can apply, I think the next is a two-week course, but you have to reapply. You can't go automatically from the weekend program to the two-week program. You have to reapply. You have to get accepted again. At the end of the two-week program, there's another graduation ceremony and so forth. And then at the end of that, you can reapply for the one-month program and the six-month program. And the most that you can stay is five years. At the end of five years, maximum, absolute maximum, you have to make a commitment to something. You have to either commit, okay, I'm going to be, uh, you know, fully, I, I don't know, they, they struggle with the terminology, but I'm going to be fully institutional devotee, for lack of a better term, although that sounds so negative, or I'm going to be a congregation devotee. And you have to make that decision. And then they, they get a contract where the local temple says, okay, if you commit to serving here for the rest of your life, we'll commit to taking care of you for the rest of your life. And they have a, they have a contract. So that's a big change in, in detail. And as far as what should be done, perhaps what changes should we have seen, um, I think that this change has not happened enough all over the world, that this shift to ISKCON as a congregational society is still not total. As I said, even in Hungary where they really... I mean, another thing they do in Hungary, they have this accredited college that has 300 students, most of whom are not devotees, but who become more or less devotees by the end of their studies. So that's a huge shift in a preaching strategy, a huge shift in how to teach people to practice Krishna consciousness, and at the same time, there's still a mood that the people who live on the temple property are superior to those who live outside. So that, that shift hasn't happened, and it's, become a, it's a source of great pain for a lot of people. It pushes people to stay on the legal ISKCON property long after they should have left for their own spiritual advancement. It causes a, a, a pride to develop, and it causes great guilt and angst for those who end up moving off of temple property. So... That still needs to happen, even in a place like Hungary, which is probably the one of the cutting edges of places that have 
address this change in detail. And I see this this mood still in so many places that if you live in the ashram, you're superior. If you, you know, if you're a brahmachari, you're superior to a grahasta. And it's not good to have a job or a business. So I think that still needs to shift. We still need to change our, our mood as far as how we're going to bring Krishna consciousness to the world. And another change that's happened, as I said in this, this book I was reading of sociological research, it was saying how people define religion and spirituality quite differently. And that's true. I don't remember the details. I'd have to look it up. I intend, I intend to make a chart from that book, but I haven't done it yet. That, that even people, when Prabhupada was here in the 60s and 70s, their definition of what it meant to be religious and what it meant to be spiritual is quite different than it is now. That the people's, you know, if you're going to be preached to pe- preach to people about spirituality, it needs to take into account how they view spirituality, what's going to appeal to them and what's not. I know that's a little vague, but I don't have the the details right in front of me. Okay, um, well, I have a lot of questions here. Ramananda, what are your thoughts about Mirabai? Did she follow a guide in her particular path? Can she be accepted as a great saint? Is her example to be followed? Well, we know what Prabhupada thought about Mirabai. He thought she was a pure devotee. He lists her name in, the, in a Bhagavatam purport uh, in relationship to Maharaj Brickett. And he named uh, at least one of his disciples Mirabai. So I think on the basis of that, we can accept that Mirabai is a great saint. Did she follow a guide in her particular path? Uh, is her example to be followed. Uh, you know, the problem is that we only have very sketchy information about Mirabai's life. There's contradictory biographies, and so it's generally the biographers will talk about that, th- that she had a guru and that she followed a particular path. Unfortunately, we just don't have that much information. And, I mean, sometimes we don't have that much information about uh, particular acharyas in our own Gaudiya Sampradaya, so it's not such a surprising thing that we're lacking biographical information. Is her example to be followed? Uh, certainly her example of total absolute devotion to Giridhari is to be followed. As far as her, what she particularly did, again, we, we don't have such accurate information about what she did, so it's it's hard to to answer that question, and I think it would be hard to follow her. Uh, we can follow her in a general way. We know that she wrote many songs about Krishna. The, there's general agreement among her biographers that she became renounced at a certain point in life. So those things certainly can be followed. Taking up renunciation in life and singing to Krishna and chanting to Krishna's name and being totally devoted to Krishna. Of course, yes, we could all follow that. As far as the specifics, you know... It's very hard in the ultimate issue for any one jiva to specifically follow any other jiva in details. I mean, even Prabhupada was telling or was ordering all of his disciples to go to Mangalartik while during Mangalartik time he personally was translating books. So if we're going to say, well, we need to follow Srila Prabhupada in the details, then, you know, our Mangalartiks would be vacant and we'll all sit in our room translating. So that's, you know, that's obviously rather silly. So it's not, you know, the details of Mirabai, which we don't even know what they are, <laughs> is not something that everybody follows, but the principles. Okay, from Swami um, B.A. Ashramarsh, he says, he thanks me for introducing the topic, and he says it's a hard one to discuss without some rancor 
off even, often even name-calling and accusations. He says, do you have suggestions for how we might be able to broaden and deepen such discussion without sectarianism rearing its ugly head? And I'd, I'd say without artificial universality rearing its ugly head, too. I think we have to avoid both. We have to avoid becoming like these people at the New Thought Center that say, and they don't commit, they don't commit to a path. And they don't commit to, or they commit briefly. You know, like you, you see in a lot of Hindus' houses, they have what I call a supermarket altar. You know, <laughs> well, today I'm going to worship this god, and today I'm going to worship that god. Um, so I think we need to avoid both of them. How do we avoid it? Oh, gosh, by becoming mature? <laughs> um, that's a terrible answer. But what other answer is there? By training people maturely from day one? I mean, look, Srila Prabhupada did it. Srila Prabhupada is exemplified, and as I said right in the beginning, I was a deal-breaker for me. If Srila Prabhupada had preached sectarianism, I wouldn't have come anywhere near the Hare Krishna movement. At the same time, Prabhupada was giving a specific path, and if he hadn't done that, I wouldn't have come anywhere near the Hare Krishna movement either. You know, I was looking for a very specific process. I wanted to know, how, how can I be spiritual when I'm shopping? How can I be spiritual when I'm getting dressed? How can I be spiritual when I'm driving a car? I, I wanted a very specific process that wasn't sectarian. And I certainly wasn't mature, not that I'm mature now. I'm still not very mature. But anyway, I most certainly wasn't mature then. So I don't see why this can't be taught even to very, very new people. Even to and, and people want this. Most people want this, in my experience. We were having a debate. I don't know if I should say exactly where. Anyway, I was working with some group of devotees on, on, on preaching. We were doing some very specific preaching, and the person in charge of the, of the preaching said, well, I don't think we should publish anything or or say anything where we give differences of opinion. I don't think we should say one devotee feels this way, another devotee feels this way. I think that just confuses people, and I think we should just simply say, this is, this is what it is. That's it. And then he went on to say, and he's a very, very, very senior devotee, he said, I can't understand why, how it's possible that different acharyas can have different opinions on different points. If they're all seeing the same siddhanta, how can they be seeing it differently? So, I, you know, it, was, it was an interesting discussion. Let's just put it that way. So, I would like to suggest that we preach the way that Srila Prabhupada preached and the way Jesus preached. <laughs> that from the very beginning train people in universal principles and individual application. Individual application that varies by sampradaya and that frankly varies by individuals within the sampradaya. And let's go beyond that. That varies by individuals in the sampradaya as their life changes. So that the, the details of how I practice Krishna consciousness, some of them have changed for me as an individual. And that's the... Uh, even, if you, even if you want to talk about Varnashram, 
what is Varnashram if not contextually applied universal principles that the sudras apply differently, the brahmanas apply differently? What is ashram if not contextualizing for one individual over the lifespan? So I think contextualization is a universal principle. You know, if we believe in personalism, if we believe in individuality, and this is something that we should teach from the beginning. You know, it's this this understanding of unity and diversity. And at the same time, not sentimental, namely-pambly, yatamat-tatapat universality. And it's not hard to understand. It just isn't. The, the, the example given of a university is a very easy one to understand. Prabhupada gave the example of the different political parties, that both political parties have the good of the country in mind, but they do it in different ways. And I think it was that letter that... Um, Oh, what's his name? Oh my goodness. Such a good friend of ours for so long. An Iranian. Anyway, that he brought up to Srila Prabhupada and he said, you know, differences of opinion are due to impersonalism. And Prabhupada said, no, they're due to personalism as long as we agree on the Siddhanta. So this is something that Srila Prabhupada felt was important enough to have as the focus of the GBC meetings every year, this unity and diversity. It was something that Prabhupada really emphasized and I see the way that we get around the accusations. And Atrey Rishi, yes, thank you. The way we get around this is that we have it as one of our priorities to discuss, that we're not afraid of it, that we don't say, oh, we can't tell the new people that anyone in the Krishna consciousness movement has any disagreement with anyone else in the Krishna consciousness movement about anything. I mean, wow. You know, if we're going to give classes to new people and we're going to... We're, we're not even just new people. If we're in, in our classes, in our writing, in our publishing, we have to pretend that everybody agrees with everybody about everything because otherwise we'll confuse people. Wow. You know, at, at what point do you tell them there's no Santa Claus? How old do they have to be before you tell them that there's no Santa Claus? So I, I think that's a great disservice to people to set up some idea which is impersonal it's ultimately impersonal anyway sorry I feel a little strongly on this point um, Mahalakshmi what causes to be extreme from being very influenced sorry it shifts it's as somebody adds something that my thing jumps down and I can't read it anymore um, maybe I'll, can I expand this Um, from being very influenced by fear and lamentation to willing to move to transcendental what's good and what's not good and what helps us to be equilibrian what is best Um, I'm not sure if I quite understand your question Mahalakshmi but I think what causes us to be extreme is pride mostly I think it's all pride sectarianism is all pride I'm better than you I, I have the only way, and the way that I'm practicing Krishna consciousness is the only way because I'm the greatest, and anybody who approaches Krishna consciousness differently is less than me. I mean, I, one thing I was very, was and am very grateful for in my marriage is that my husband had a different 
way of approaching Srila Prabhupada than I did. And at first it was really difficult because I was longing for that kind of connection in, in my particular mood, but it broadened me and I was so thankful for it. So that this sort of pride that you know, the particular way in which I relate to my guru, the particular way in which I practice Krishna consciousness is pride. And the extreme of universality is also pride. I don't have to follow anybody. I can make up my own system. I don't, I don't have to do what my professor says. You know, I, I know better than anybody, and I can take a little from here and a little from there. It's all pride. Therefore, Krishna says... 13.8 Bhagavad Gita, the beginning of knowledge is humility. So I, I see that humility means I'm, I'm following my teacher because everyone has to follow a path and I'm following my teacher to the best of my ability according to my individuality and I need a teacher because I don't know. And I respect that others, as long as they're within the Siddhanta, as long as they're loving God and loving all living entities, and as long as they're coming, having the symptoms of coming to goodness and coming to transcendence, then I offer them all respect. Okay, we have here, um, well, so many here. To come, I don't know if we'll have time to answer all these questions. Uh, Jai Degadish says, do you agree that the growth of the movement in the U.S. seems to be stalled? If so, what can we do about it? Those, um, my travel is mostly out of the U.S., so I spend the majority of my time in Europe, India, South Africa. Uh, I've started to go to Central and South America, Australia, New Zealand. I'm starting to spend more and more time in the U.S., but... I definitely have not spent the majority of my time in the U.S. since 2006. So I'm probably not the best person to comment on this. I, I have a firm principle that people should speak only about those things which they have direct personal experience. So that's one thing. Then when you say seems to be stalled, the word stalled is would have to be defined. What do we mean by stalled? Um, I think all of us would agree that regardless of U.S. or Russia or Slovakia or South Africa, that we'd like Krishna consciousness to be spreading faster than it is. I think everybody would agree to that. Um, if so, what can we do about it? Well, I'm... <laughs> why, don't we be, why don't we work on our own personal purity? If we work on our own personal purity and we remove the clouds of ignorance from our own eyes, then we'll, what does Prabhupada say? One's duty will be self-manifested by the grace of the Lord. So all any of us ever needs to know is what should I do. I don't need to know what anyone else should do. Even if I'm guiding others, all I need to know is what should I do to guide them, <laughs> which is not exactly the same as what should they do by the way. It's a, it's a subtle but, but meaningful difference. So even if I'm guiding children or disciples or students, all I ever need to know is what should I do to spread Krishna consciousness. I don't really need to know exactly what someone else should do. So <clears throat> the question is more, is this, 
is my spreading of Krishna consciousness stalled or is my spreading of Krishna consciousness effective is my own internal Krishna consciousness stalled or is my own internal Krishna consciousness is as being effective and what can I personally do about it and if everybody did that then well everything would go on now wouldn't it and even if just one person thought like that just we had one Srila Prabhupada one Jesus one Mohammed if just one person achieves that then interestingly enough everything also goes on it's not that oh if I achieve it I'm just one person it's not going to be achieved so get the clouds of ignorance what did Jesus say you know you're looking at the at the speck in someone else's eye when you have a log in your own eye I'm not talking to you personally I'm just talking as a principle he says you hypocrite first get the log out of your own eye then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye so I think, you know, there, uh, many, 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 many years ago, oh gosh, it was so many years ago, I can't remember how long ago it was, I was uh, meeting with Tripurari Swami, it must be at least 20, 30 years ago, 35 years ago, I don't remember, it was a very long time ago. And I asked him about preaching, what can I do to preach? And he looked at me and he said, the biggest need is for purity, just become pure and then you'll know exactly what you're supposed to do. So I, I've taken that as a real guiding principle. As Prabhupada said, first save yourself. He said the highest principle is to save others, and higher than that is to save yourself. So in my own practical personal experience, when I let go of an, when I allow Krishna to take away an artas, when I become more connected with Krishna, when I develop deeper relationships with the Vaishnavas, when I study Srila Prabhupada's books threadbare from many angles of vision then automatically that my duty becomes self-manifested by the grace of the Lord and what I personally need to do to spread Krishna consciousness becomes obvious. That's my personal experience. Okay, um, the Dagdamadava says, Srila Bhaktivinoda Thakur denounced his party spirit, that great enemy of truth. Also, Srila Prabhupada makes this clear in his books that pride is an irreligious principle. How is this point missed and tolerated in Srila Prabhupada's movement? And well, so many points are missed and tolerated. Again, I, I let's look at us as individuals. I mean, I'm just speaking for myself as an individual. What I find in my practice of Krishna consciousness is that I miss lots of points and I tolerate a lot of nonsense in myself, thinking it's something else. You know, over and over and over again in my development of Krishna consciousness something that I've tolerated in myself, something even that I've, I've worshipped in myself, something that I thought was wonderful about myself, something that I was very proud of in terms of my spirituality, would later be revealed to be something, an ugly inarta. And this has happened to me over and over and over again, and I assume it's going to happen over and over and over again, going on into the future that I'll think, oh, this particular mentality, this particular behavior is evidence of my devotion, it's evidence of my surrender, it's evidence of my purity, you know. And I had a, after one big experience like this, I wrote a poem where I said, the jewel on the altar is a garbage heap, the pattern on the cloth was just a stain. So this is, if this is true, and, and in, in counseling and talking with so many other practicing Vaishnavas, I find that others have exactly the same experience. So why should 
I expect that what happens, why should I not expect that something that happens on an individual level will not also happen uh, on an institutional level. The institution is a collection of individuals. And I don't see very many things that one can do to force this. It, there, there has to be a willingness on the part of individuals to see the truth. So the only way that the only way that I know of, uh, maybe there's other ways, but the only way that I know of is humility and a desire to see the truth. A real desire for the absolute truth, the summum bonum, as we have in today's verse, the, the supreme good. And until and unless one wants to see the truth, then one is in maya, which means you, you see something for what it is not. You'll have a, a party spirit, and you think, you think your party spirit is your greatest jewel. You think your party spirit is the greatest evidence of your loyalty to your guru. You think your party spirit is the greatest evidence of your faithfulness to your guru. And, you know, your guru is looking at you thinking, how unfortunate. I had a situation some years ago where I was injured and I needed ongoing personal care and the person who cared for me was professing great devotion to me. Oh, I'm your servant, I'll do whatever you want. In, 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 to a very extreme extent. And she would regularly do the opposite of what I asked her to do. Literally, quite literally. She said, should I get you a wheelchair? I said, no, I'd rather use crutches. I don't want to go around my pool in a wheelchair. And she went and got me a wheelchair. And I said, I don't want a wheelchair. Oh, but I got it to serve you. I said, but if you serve me, you'll serve me in the way I want. Or I was feeling very sick, and I said, I can only eat like rice and yogurt. And she brought me pakoras, and I said, I can't eat pakoras. They'll make me sick. And she said, but it pains me to feed you rice and yogurt. I said, well, I'm not eating to give you pleasure, frankly. I said, I'm eating for my health, not for your health. And she never got it. She never understood it, she just didn't understand. It didn't matter what I said. It didn't matter what I did. She simply didn't understand that in the that what she thought was her devotion was actually a disturbance. So the main thing I learned from her was that I'm guilty of the same thing, and I'm putting it in the present tense, that unless we're floating in an ocean of prema 24-7, we're all guilty of that. Vishnu Chakravati Thakur says, Imadira Kadambani, we might say, I'm not committing offenses, but if we're not in constant ecstasy, we must be committing offenses. And this is the, the root of all this offenses, is this, this, this pride that I'm, I'm that, uh, that all these things about me are so wonderful when they're not. So what can we do? You know, we can be, go- we, we can be going through an arjuna vritti ourselves, Hare Krishna. We can be facing our demons ourselves. We can be looking at our demons who are disguised as cowherd boys, our demons who are disguised as calves, and letting Krishna kill them. Let Krishna kill the Vasasura and Vyomasura, and, Pal- and Balaram kill the Palambasura. Let 
Let the Lord and the Guru kill the demons who are disguised as calves and cowherd bulls. Let Krishna swallow the fire of sectarianism. You know, give ourselves, lie down on the operating table of the of the doctor, and let him let him excise the disease from our own hearts. And then and then we we can be in a position to help others and help the institution and be full of compassion. Be full of compassion. If I am so blind and I am so stupid. And if I can play with a demon disguised as a coward boy and not know it's a demon, then all I should feel for anyone else is compassion. Only. Um, okay. But yeah, it is, it is amazing that like it probably says in the 12th chapter, you know, that you don't join any faction and therefore you're free. <laughs> All right, Krishna. Okay, back to Luciano. In my country, Chile, oops, just switched again. In my country, Chile, there are no options of Ahimsa farms. So, keeps jumping. So, whilst I work, look on Ahimsa farms, I offer supermarket milk and use it on my preparations of the large lacto-vegetarian cookbook, Sheila Prabhupada left us. I understand that offering the supermarket milk will be of spiritual benefit to the cows, but a new argument has appeared that this could be as good as daydreaming. Could you please comment? I, I don't want to get into the specific point because uh, I, I think it's, it's way too detailed for 7.22 in the morning. And Srila Prabhupada certainly talks about in this purport about not unnecessary killing of animals. And I think this is a particular question. This is a detailed question that needs to be answered on an individual level in consultation with your particular authorities in your particular time, place, and circumstance. Obviously, 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 we want to stop all cow slaughter all over the planet. That's obvious. And obviously, we want to offer Krishna the most superior food in general that we can offer him. Like, what was it, Raghava Pandit, who when the person carrying the coconuts, you know, there were locally available coconuts, but at great expense, he had higher quality coconuts brought from a distant place. I think it was Raghava Pandit. And when the coconuts were being brought to the deity, the person carrying the coconuts touched the top of the door and some dust fell on the coconuts. And so Raghava Pandit had the coconuts thrown away and got fresh coconuts. And Prabhupada said he wasn't just some, didn't have just so, some sort of you know cleanliness disorder, but he had a mood of, of wanting to offer Krishna the best. So we should always want to offer the Krishna, Krishna the best. But the best, of course, means the best that I can offer. So I'm sure they have much nicer fruit on Indra's planet. I offered my deities a, a nectarine this morning. And I mean, I'm in Hawaii, so I can get some pretty nice fruit in Hawaii. I'm sure on Swargaloka they have better nectarines, but I haven't yet developed my property city to reach out and get them. So I have to offer the best that I can offer. And that's an individual, you have to individually be honest. Am I really offering the best that I can offer, or am I making excuses? And if you're really offering the best that you can offer, then you're offering the best that you can offer. And if you're not, and see how you can improve. You know, when the devotees were in Soviet prisons and all they were given to eat, the only vegetarian food that they were given was bread, 
you know, we're not normally supposed to eat grains cooked by non-devotees, but if they didn't eat that bread, they would have had absolutely nothing to eat and they would have fasted. So they offered that bread, that, that salted bread, that's all they offered. So that's exactly how this is applied, has to be done uh, very individually. I don't, you know, and, and as far as what kind of policies temples have, again, that has to be done in, in, um, in consultation with people in your area and in prayer. Okay, we have, there's a comment here I think I missed because the comments jumped down. Um... Roy Ramas says in an interview when asked when he came why when he came to the West, Prabhupada said he came to enlighten, not to convert. Uh, oh, okay, I'm moving up. You said there are universal principles of religion. Prabhupada says any religion that gives you love of God is perfect religion. If you're a Christian, follow the principles, but don't be a hypocrite. Thou shalt not kill. Yes, not to convert, but to enlighten. So I think we'll stop here. Yes, I can hear you. My voice is dropping off. Okay, it must be time to end. And there's no more questions. Srila Prabhupada Ki Jai. Jai.